Thanks for listening. Today, my guest is Dr. Wayne Liebhard, physician and author and musician and a whole bunch of stuff. A whole bunch of stuff. <laughs> Thanks for making it. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me here. So, um, yeah, give me a little background on, on yourself. How do you get to be all those things? Uh, I guess you just never really decide what you want to be when you grow up. <laughs> I think it has to be it. But um, it's interesting. I, I write novels also, and sort of one of my themes in there is doctors who couldn't decide if they wanted to do medicine or music, which was really me. So it kind of came down to the, I realized I could be a doctor and a musician, but it would be harder to be a musician and a doctor, if that makes sense. So that's kind of how it came out. So I've been playing in the same band for close to 50 years, a rock band, and do some writing and composing and recording. and uh, But that all fit in to you know, doing medicine. So on the weekends when I wasn't on call, did that, and our kids from this age on, you know, came and danced and did all that fun stuff. So it all kind of fit together. But medicine was much more of a, uh, of a calling for the cerebral aspect as well as the people contact and everything else. So Well, it's a nice job because it can change with the seasons of life. Mm -hmm. You know, if you want some flexibility because you want to stay home with your kids for a little bit, you can pull back mm -hmm. then go back further and then they're out of the house and you can work even more and mm -hmm. you can even change within careers. I've seen people go primary care to urgent care or back or concierge. That's kind of what I did. And I, I was very fortunate. My wife, um, I always said, you know, I never missed a, a game or a concert or anything our kids were involved with. Because when I got home, everything was done. And I always thought, in the neighborhood, the joke is, I don't know how to start my lawnmower. And we have a <laughs> lot of lawn. So this woman has a better toolkit than I have. And she's you know, willing to have all that stuff done. So it was family time. And we did all our community service things together, church and 4-H and all those fun things we did. Um, so it worked out great. It really did. Had a great family life as well as been able to practice, you know, really pretty intense medicine during that And time. you're still practicing? And, yeah, I'm still doing some urgent care. So I was a family doc for 20 years, did, delivered lots of babies, did hospital work, ER work, started out in Shakopee when Shakopee was a small town <laughs> <laughs> and we did everything and we didn't have consultants. We didn't have, you know, intensivists or cardiologists or internists. We'd run the ICU on the weekends, delivered our own babies, and then we started, you know, um, running two hospitals, we went over to Fairview Ridges as well, and to St. Francis. And actually, I wrote my first book, Elephants in the Exam Room, um, right about the time I was leaving primary care because in the mid to late OOs, uh, it was really becoming untenable. Mm -hmm. You know, the whole Minnesota Experimentation Act, I call this, you know, it's like, my some of my old partners called this the cesspool of practice. You know, which it's a great it's a great state. I love it. Mm -hmm. I love to practice here, but all that great stuff like, you know, pay for performance and prior authorization mm -hmm. and evidence based medicine. Yeah. You know, and ISBNs now ACOs all seem to sort of come from here, and it just and, and it kind of you know floods its way to the rest of the country. It, it I just decided it was time to get out and do something else and start writing and lecturing about it. So I did and. Been writing for Minnesota Physician Journal for about 30 years too, just on the doctor-patient relationship primarily. I think in the last the last 30 years have probably been the the most calamitous changes in our mm -hmm. profession. I mean, a profession that right. endured for hundreds of years and then all of a sudden, poof, within the blink of an eye in terms of that time frame, has gone from being independent people who were doing the best thing possible for the patient in front of them mm -hmm. to gatekeepers and uh, social justice warriors and corporate <laughs> drones. 
I mean, there's no, you know, that's what differentiates a professional from just any other employee is yeah, that there's some higher absolutely. calling, some ethos that we share and that we serve beyond simply just getting a paycheck and, you know, working for mm -hmm. an employer. And I'm not, I don't think that exists. I thought it anymore. was interesting. I mean, I started residency in 19, <laughs> um, 83, tells you how old I am. But DRGs are just coming in and the old time docs are just going crazy. And I'm going, man, if you guys do, <laughs> as I thought 10 years later, look back, man, if you guys knew what was really coming down the pike, DRGs wouldn't have bothered you right. as much. Diagnosis related groups in hospital for hospitalization wouldn't have bothered you as much as as they did at the time with everything else that was on the way. So, well, I think people just, they had no idea. And again, like Thatcher's ratchet, it's just this incremental mm -hmm. crushing right. of your spirit over decades. And it's piece mm -hmm. by piece. First, they take away, they take away your ability to set prices, right? My plumber mm -hmm. sets a price and I decide if it's a good deal or not to fix my toilet or if I want to try to go it alone on a Saturday. Mm -hmm. um, and it used to be forever that physicians set don't you pay his discounted rate, Neil? <laughs> <laughs> no, I very gratefully pay my bill in full. <laughs> um, and, and so I don't think people realize that that was the beginning of the end. They should have known uh -huh. when the Medicare Act was passed that as soon as you lose pricing power and they gave up, quote unquote, pricing power to bureaucrats who would now say that your service XYZ is worth whatever, mm -hmm. that that's the beginning of losing your autonomy. Well, you know, we couldn't really unionize and, and like my old partner, the one I just went to his just retirement party this weekend and we should get the shirt and show my shirt. You should. <laughs> we'll pick it up. Uh, but he always said, you know, we're so busy on the hamster wheel, running on the hamster wheel. And that's partly an excuse. I mean, we let it happen to us too. Mm -hmm. And so my wife has always said, you know, it happened on your watch. You probably could have done more, but we were all so busy and we're all supposed to be the altruists, right? That's what well, they, I think they trade on that quite a bit. Like, well, oh, absolutely. take this for the team because you really did this for the patients. You're like, I, I, I did, but you're trading away my profession and the mm -hmm. ability for future generations to actually have competent patient-focused yeah. care. I get into that in the book here. There's uh, some very good quotes about that, just about how you know, corporate medicine relies on the altruism of physicians yes. to basically always make it work one way or the other. Yeah. You know, more time, more effort, you know, grind it out, tighten up your coronaries a little more, you know. Well, commit suicide at four times the rate of the population. No one cares about that. I have a friend who actually who's dying of stage four colon cancer who is trying to do something with getting physicians to, because of the high suicide rate, that's one thing he's noted. And he says, before I leave, I want at least one star in my helmet that says I did something really good. And, but we can't get docs to get together. And I tried that in the Southern Metro to get, the stigmas, you know, but this is the same. Well, and let's, you know, bring in people from the corporate. No, are you kidding me? Well, they tell you, Do you want someone harder. from the fair views yeah. of the world sitting there and you're going to be speaking about this ahead of them? I don't think so. Well, they tell you they're like, you know, resilience and co-parter ultimate victim blaming, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's you uh, need to do X, Y, Z to deal with. Well, how about all the externalities that you've heaped on me that are mm -hmm. making it so that I can't take care of my kids? Ultimately, what I want to do is going to work every day take care of the people in front of me mm -hmm. and everything that you do that takes me away from that time is what's causing that underlying level of stress and mm -hmm. an already stressful job i think people right. don't realize when it comes to physicians or first responders or you think that just the day-to-day -day nastiness you see you, you, people mm -hmm. dying people getting terminal diagnoses kids very sick like we all signed up for that and i'm not going to go cry about how that part of the job is stressful um, but you don't need to heap all the other insults on top of it to mm -hmm. say, now you can't take care of this patient. You have to 
you can't use these drugs, they're not on formulary, and you can't do this or that, or ask for this prior authorization, or the mm -hmm. fact that you want to make a living wage for the amount of time that you've put into getting this is a, you should take one for the team and just make a little bit less. No, no thank you. <laughs> I think I told you when we talked a couple of weeks ago, I said I think the reason I persevered was I grew up as the middle child of nine in a German Catholic farm family. So that was all, all good, all <laughs> that is good. Um, but it sort of teaches you to be ready for what gets thrown at you. Yeah. <laughs> so what inspired you to write that? That was your first book. Uh, this, yeah. So this is book four, and I have a novel out with an agent who's uh, a doctor whose life got messed up, he thinks, because he, he went into medicine instead of music. And another one I'm writing as a post, another novel right now that's sort of a post-COVID, post-pandemic, kind of a thriller thing. So this is four. This is walking the tightrope, trusting your life to telemedicine. Um, what really threw me, even after all this time of writing, you know, and for Minnesota Physician Journal, various magazines doing these books and lecturing, is I thought, so the, the uh, elephants in the exam room were the one and its sequel were the first two books and just about all of the things that don't get talked about that we really should be talking about and how to preserve the doctor-patient relationship. And then so I'm doing urgent care and I see this and I think, how could you really even get further into the exam room with us? Well, here's a way. Um, let's uh, do this thing called telemedicine where, um, so since 80% of physicians now are roughly are employed by corporations, let's say you're going to do 30% of your visits on telemedicine and then we're going to tell you what's coming through and you don't get to have any say in it. We don't get to, you don't get to choose who's coming. Um, and I'm thinking, wow, I mean, could we get further you know, into controlling what you're doing and what you're seeing? I guess it, it, it shocked even me at this point going, wow, I thought probably the, the intrusion may have been as far as it was into you sitting in the exam mm -hmm. room with me, but this was, you know, so, and I thought the other thing that really bothered me, sort of the big corporate advertising juggernaut, if you remember some of those early commercials, uh, get the same great cares with an office visit. It's sort of like taste less filling, taste great, less <laughs> filling, right. I don't know. But I'm going, oh really? So you're gonna get the same great care as an office visit, right? So what's the public think? The public thinks, well, that's my doctor doing this, right? My doctor is, is offering this service. So it he has, must think it's good. It right. must be safe, right? So I, I think back to, you know, the metaphor I used in, previous book, it's like a lot of people in this country think think that there's oversight on everything. So if you drive down the highway on a 90 degree day and some guy's shrilling, selling shrimp off the back of his rusty pickup, it has to be safe. <laughs> or my mythical Jim and Bob's uh, go-kart uh, go bungee jumping hog roast emporium. You see the big sign. Why drive any further? It's <laughs> all right there. It must be safe. And so and I'm thinking someone needs to write something that says no, just because it's being offered. And you really do like convenience. We're a convenient right. society, right? right? And you want the convenience. So, oh my God, it has to be there. Why not? Why not evaluate my abdominal pain? Right. You know, push that phone on your abdomen and tell me where it hurts. Oh, yeah. Well, those virtual digital rectal exams are killer. <laughs> <laughs> or stick your iPhone, listen, down to your tonsils that I've seen this happen. Yeah. You know? <laughs> ah. So, you know, I mean, to steel man the argument, there is a place for telemedicine, right? I mean, tele tele-ICUs have been used to provide, mm -hmm. uh, you know, intensivist coverage to rural areas. In dermatology, where we've done store and forward for a long time under controlled mm -hmm. environments, there's a high degree of concordance with clinical exam. So by all means, 
there are appropriate use cases mm -hmm. for it. Um, look, if you're at a forward operating base in the middle of Afghanistan, you can have world-class care and certain things piped in through a satellite dish to your FOB. Mm -hmm. But for many things, it also fails. And that's why I feel is that there's such as is disingenuous to say that it's good in all cases and particularly without triage. Yeah, and it's not bad in all cases. Right. So exactly that. So we had teleradiology in the 50s, telepsych consults, I think the first telerobotic surgery about 2001, and and remote consults, absolutely. And about talking about your Prozac use, going over your, your mm -hmm. blood sugars, even doing some physical therapy things. You know, the problem is, is where does it end? So in my list of things I wanted to talk about today, I had to write these down because these, these are so good. There's this doctor on demand, I think it's Dr. Phil's son, I think that has that, maybe yeah. I'm wrong. But they actually list the things they won't take care of, right? So brain or spinal cord injuries, chest pain, vomiting, lacerations. I go, that's okay. Oh, and pediatric <laughs> ear infections. Someone must have gotten sued for something on that. <laughs> Which leaves the things that are apparently okay are abdominal pain, fevers, headaches, stiff necks, shortness of breath, yeah. dizziness, or we'll just order a test. So here's a great story. So in the urgent care, this is about two years ago, I see this guy who absolutely on exam has appendicitis. No question in my mind. Even though his white count is normal, his exam is boom. I order the CT, they read the CT as negative. I say, you know, no, I think you have appendicitis. I want surgeons to lay hands on you. So I send him to the ER. Surgeon lays hand on him and says, I think he has appendicitis. Calls the radiologist back who looks at the CT again and says, oh, guess what? I think he has appendicitis, which means things aren't perfect. Anyone can make mistakes, but you right. need the exam, right. you know. And I opened the book with the case of a guy who, you know, um, we saw who came into the urgent care with a blood pressure of 60 over nothing, who had been seen a few days earlier for low back pain. Well, he wasn't about to bear the actual part of his physique on camera, yeah. he had Fournier's gangrene and had four operations a, and died flesh-eating bacteria. Horrific, basically. horrific diagnosis. High Absolutely, mortality, and and requires not surgery that, immediately. Right. Things can't right, and he may have been saved if he would have. Um, but it's where do we draw the line? Where do we say you know that? And and I think I probably used the words "follow the money" at least ten times. Yeah. You know, in the book here. Um, well, so there's the, there's the follow the money, and then there's the more sinister you know, the resource utilization side of follow the money. It's like, well, they can't cost very much if they're dead. And some of those <laughs> items you list, the, you know, uh -huh. the um, abdominal pain, that's a terrifying, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, and, or sore neck. That's everything from meningi early meningitis to mm -hmm. tech neck, right? Something totally harmless to mm -hmm. death to life-threatening. And right. that gestalt that your surgeon had, which is, you know, I think the further you get into practice, you have seen thousands and thousands of presentations. And so you gain that. That is a very powerful form of evidence, but it's one that the tech bros designing these platforms don't understand or value. Yeah. And it's experience, and, and this is another, we won't have to get deeply into this, but it's the experience of going to medical school and having a medical residency, and for some of us going out and working in remote locations mm -hmm. and getting our uh, gluteals getting, handed to us enough yes. to know yeah. that you know, you need to stand up. I don't care if the radiologist said it was negative. This is my, this is what my exam tells me. Right. Or it's just like, well, we're going to treat your, you know, your UTI or here, here's some antibiotics that won't penetrate into the kidney. But by the way, I can't tell you the number of times I've examined a woman who's had no back pain or fever who has pyelonephritis, right. which I find on exam and do a urine. And pyelonephritis can lead to sepsis, which can quickly lead to death. But, well, that's simple. You have dysuria. We're just right. going to give you an antibiotic for three days, by the way. That's probably also sub, you know, therapeutic. Yep. So, so, I mean, and, and we're not, well, like, what, 
what are we training? You know, the people, <laughs> right, there's no longer physicians, it's just providers. Okay, but who are we sending out to the front lines to deal with these difficult cases? People with less and less training. I mean, I, when I went to medical school, it was not that long ago. I graduated in 2007, and it was hardcore. There has to be the pathophysiology. And I'm the, not the, saying when I graduated. <laughs> anyway, sorry. And, and all those things you had to learn because it's a enormous corpus of knowledge that you have to be able to assimilate. Mm -hmm. Then you also need to understand the tools to take apart studies, to understand, mm -hmm. you know, uh, how the systems work. There's enough to pack in there. And now that's no longer consideration, right? In a world where organic chemistry professors are fired because their mm -hmm. class is too hard. Right. And or we're going pass-fail because it's too... That's right. Pass-fail medical school. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you were, do you want your surgeon to have been pass-fail? The guy who's going to take out a chunk of your brain or repair... Yeah, I want the past real guy. Yeah, exactly. So my That's wife always said, says. you know, she goes, and by the way, I refer to my wife a lot. Hi, Joy. Uh, probably the smartest person I know. And, and, and I'm not only saying that to endear myself, but <laughs> she cuts through the chaff, you know, but she'll say, you know, really, I really don't care what his bedside manner is as long as he can Are cut. Good? Yeah. <laughs> I yeah, want well. him to be able to cut. That's one thing everyone, uh, you know, asks or physicians will select for someone who's like, you know, he can be gruff, but is he good? Yeah, and is then I think good? Pa patients are worried about your Google reviews, and you're like, I think you're asking for the wrong thing. This well, isn't a sandwich. Shop. And it's also what you concentrate on. We talked about this just a few minutes ago, you know, and I, I am not going to blanket condemn anyone who decides that some social justice issues may be important to them to a degree, okay? But like anything else, like I'm thinking I'm the steward of the healthcare dollar when I walk into the room and that's the first thing on my mind when I'm going right. to see a patient right. versus, you know, I, social justice should be sitting down here versus what am I going to be doing to learn to make sure that I don't miss something. Yep. So I'm thinking about that issue with what we talked about with the recent white coat ceremony at the University yeah. of Minnesota Medical Well, for the people school. that don't know, I mean, briefly yeah. review. Yeah, go what, ahead. So, okay, so the white coat ceremony is one of the first things you do in medical school at the U. Your first year, you can, you, you don't know anything. You just graduated college. But what they give you is a short white coat to signify that you're a student, but it's that you're embarking on this journey that is a hallowed profession. It is a difficult mm -hmm. path, but you are doing something very important, and you will be entrusted to help people lead longer, healthier lives. And so there's a ceremony. And I think that it, when I did it, it was extremely important. You understood mm -hmm. what you were embarking on. You understood the difficulty, but also the importance and the great privilege that were given to do things that would land you in jail for life, right? Cutting someone open, mm -hmm. removing some organs, and then sewing them <laughs> back up. And we get to send them a bill. Not yeah. just do not go to jail, we send them a bill. Exactly. So um, there's this privilege and this responsibility with joining a profession. Mm -hmm. exactly. But instead... The University of Minnesota, in their infinite wisdom this year, decided to make it about wokeness and social justice. And they start with some bizarre, this cult, again, this is all a cult, so they start with this cult-like invocation about so-and-so's land and this and that. Never mind that whoever was here probably stole it from the people who were before them or vice versa. Um, and then they go into this whole thing about, you know, privilege and X, Y, Z, and it's like, Is it no. the place? It's not, because medicine mm -hmm. is, I don't care what color you are. I don't care what you do for a living. Right. I don't care how wealthy you are. And My job is to do have. the best for you. One of the reasons I went into family, you know, do you remember the book House of God? Yes. And one of the coolest things in that book was when one of the people, one of the characters in the book was talking about his father who practiced in South Carolina, I believe, and he'd go out into the bayous and take care of 
really, really poor people and deliver their babies and come back in the afternoon would be doing a house call visit and sitting on Battery Row in Charleston and having tea. And I thought, this is the coolest thing about what we do because we relate to people from all facets of life. Yep. We treat them all the same. We don't treat them differently. This insinuation that somehow there's some you know, inbred form of discrimination that we have is just frustrating as hell to me, to say the least. Well, these folks, when it comes what we, to what yeah. we do and what we do for people and how we see people, all people, and they try to see racism in everything. If you if you want to, if you hallucinate hard enough, <laughs> you will find it. Yeah. And so everything, every measure of like, well, okay, so there's very few or no Asians in the NBA. Is that racism? Or is that something else? Depends on who you are and who, yeah, <laughs> and how, know, what, mean, what I, mirror you're looking well, 5 at. Five percent right? of the NBA should be coming Asian if we're going to do quotas, but right. no one wants to watch that kind of basketball. So, th it's this bizarre idea that racism lurks behind every every corner, and that every health disparity, uh, if you even want to call it that, or every issue that we have when you look at populations and health is as a direct result of this, mm -hmm. and that somehow addressing magically addressing that even though the civil rights era is a long time ago and, and mm -hmm. there is in law no racism in this country there's mm -hmm. certainly racists but there is no systemic racism with the exception of affirmative action that's still one vestige of systemic racism but with the exception of that there is no codified legal discrimination based on race or national origin in america mm -hmm. but yet they find this everywhere and then they want to take up valuable time that people need to be learning about anatomy, physiology, pharmacology, pathophysiology, mm -hmm. and waste it on non-science-based cultish endeavors like what they saw, what they did in the White Coat Center. Yeah. So as a University of Minnesota alum, I will not give a single dollar to that institution until they reform their I think behavior. There's a number of people who probably feel the same way. It's, and it's surprising in this boiling pot of a society with the amount of ethnicities that we get along as well as we do, but despite that, yeah. you know, we see what we see. I get. I thought of this. I, <laughs> the speech I gave several years ago. I was the alumni society president for a couple of terms, so you get to address the graduating class of the med school, right? So who did I have to follow? Ben Carson, <laughs> which was <laughs> tough act to follow, yep. but what? Oh, what a man! It's fantastic, and what a story, you know, too. But I'm thinking that speech, which was on the Hippocratic Oath. And, and and the need to follow your oath, no matter what kind of outside pressures you face mm -hmm. from corporate medicine. And I and I had just just for the hell of it done an interview with a large healthcare conglomerate. I don't know, should we name them or not? <laughs> this was the one that Dave Durenberger said to me many years. <laughs> he said, "I always knew we'd get to single payer healthcare system, but I just didn't realize it would be a big office in Minnetonka, Minnesota." <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Anyway. Um, but I think I think it, the, the speech wouldn't even go over now because it's like we're, oh, yeah. we're so busy. You know, we're thinking about the oath. You have to live by that oath. It is the do no harm oath, and you need to live by that. No matter what the outside pressures are, you need to stand up. You need to fight, and that's what I'm worried about. I'm worried about. We talked about what are we producing? Are we producing? physicians that are willing to do that and to say, no, I'm not the steward of the healthcare dollar. Yes, I'm concerned about that. Yeah. No, I'm not going to practice just population medicine because it says, oh, the chance is only 0.02% that you have. Um, no, we're going to sit down and talk about everything and then we're going to decide what you want to do and what we want to do together rather than having some 
hand over the top of us telling us how we're going to do this. I think the cramdown is only going to get worse, which is why I advise people to, to not go in to, to healthcare fields because you know, it states like California uh, passing laws saying we're going to come after your license yeah. if you don't do what we tell you to do. And then Two, you say, well, 2098, I think that is, right? Yeah. Isn't that that bill? And there's no evidentiary See. base for what you're asking me to do, right? George so if it comes Orwell, to this, anyone? Yeah. It is Orwellian. But what they're asking you to do is anti-scientific. So, for mm -hmm. example, with the trans rights stuff or, or, you know, transitioning kids, there is no data for that. Europe has completely pulled back. They've said, we made this mistake. It was an idea. Mm -hmm. We did experiments. We studied the data and found out that it didn't help anybody. And wait a minute, huge wait a minute, wait a minute. Isn't the science settled? <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's right. On everything as far as I oh, understand. Anyone that can why, even put why? the word settled after science has no idea what science <laughs> exactly actually right. is. Exactly yeah. right. Science is never settled. It, it's mean. about not being settled. It's about skepticism. Yeah. And, in, and understanding, having some... Uh, you know, understanding that we've been wrong so many times or had an incomplete look, right? Newtonian mm -hmm. mechanics completely breaks down mm -hmm. as you get close to the speed of light. That doesn't mean Newtonian mechanics is wrong. It just means it was horribly incomplete. And in many cases in medicine, in our lifetime, how many drugs have we seen go away? Thalidomide, Vioxx, mm -hmm. where we were wrong, like really wrong, and mm -hmm. people died or were hurt forever. I mean, you think there would be more skepticism. But that's an experience thing, too. I write a lot about early and late adopters in here. And me, well, I puts myself somewhere in the middle. Like back in the FenFen days, when patients would come in and I'd say, no, I, we don't know enough about this. And if you really look at what's going on, you know, a year later after you stop it, almost no one actually had sustained weight loss. And I lost a few patients out of my practice until they'd show up a couple years later and say, hey, can I have that echocardiography now to <laughs> see whether or not my mitral valve has been destroyed? You know, but, you know, so I'm not the guy who drives a 68 Buick and still has a brick cell phone. Yeah. But somewhere in there, you know, you have to decide to have enough skepticism and decide what road you walk down. You know, don't be the last, but maybe don't always be the first. Definitely don't be the first. And, and you should have some humility that, like, look at how many times we've failed. The arrogance of science has failed mm -hmm. so many times. I mean... Which story do you want? People, you know, lytics versus, you know, going and cathing somebody and or do you want to talk about the drugs that have failed? And then it, it's and, and so that, that I remember this discussion coming out about like the mRNA shots for covid. And, and I was like, you know, it's a it's a new class. Like, mm -hmm. why? Why would we choose a new class? What's wrong with, you know, heat killed, inactivated, live you know, attenuated viruses like we we know that stuff like mm -hmm. we can do that. And some countries did that, you know, mm -hmm. uh, China did, um, Russia did something like that. Eventually one got approved just recently in the United States, but it had to go through regulatory hell even though it's a, it's an old trial and mm -hmm. there's advantages to using that specific type because it's the whole, the whole virus. So you get N and C um, antibodies and, but it was not, it was like charge forward, first time, billions of people and you're like, you know what? You can't even, you can't even predict the long tail risks that come with doing that. When you hit a, billion you're gonna ha that those long tails come to be reality mm -hmm. those point zero 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 ones that's somebody's kid that's going to have some issue type and now there's you know like yeah there's a legit case of type 1 diabetes i'm sure there's more than one but there's at least one mm. that's admitted by the manufacturer mm. and everybody like yep this seems to fulfill all the things we look for and it's like okay so there's no such thing as a risk-free treatment I mean, mm -hmm. Tylenol is plenty risky. I don't know how many known grams you've done in your career, but <laughs> plenty of people die from Tylenol, but it still has mm -hmm. its use. Mm -hmm. And we, we, you have to look at things like that. There's no free lunch. 
and before we go saying, you absolutely have to do this, you have to be able to do the risk-benefit calculation. And even if a patient's going to make a terrible decision, they still have that right to make that decision for themselves. Right. Um, but we've ridden over all of that. Well, or, or uh, in a discussion with their doctor. I'm, I'm heavily into something called informed refusal, mm -hmm. which is where we sit down and we talk about the options. And I don't not go toward those options. I tell you what, well, we could do a CT, we could do a D-dimer, we could do this. Okay, here's our possibilities, you know, what would you like to do? And then inform the patient of that so they know they make the decision. I document that decision that we've discussed it, but that's the type of things that you, you need to know what your options are out mm -hmm. there. And yep. we can't have, you know, our, our lips sewn together when it comes to dealing with that. But this is the salvation, you know, is telemedicine, obviously. I was thinking about <laughs> my friend today who calls me, who's having some right-sided chest discomfort, and she says, well, I can't get into my doctor, obviously, but they, they said it's sometime in November for a, a yeah. virtual visit even. Reminded me of another former patient, a patient, uh, a colleague of mine who's retired, who used to refer to us as cost centers. Yeah. He goes, yeah, you know, when the um, healthcare conglomerate also owns the insurance company, then let's see, how does it work? Well, that money that we received in your premiums is our money. So anytime you come in, you're spending our money. So physicians are just cost centers that are spending those premium dollars that really belong to that healthcare conglomerate that actually also owns the insurance company. That was that whole great ISBN thing, right? We're gonna integrate this, right? And uh -huh. we're gonna try to make sure that we don't have three major players running everything, which is what you pretty much ended up getting. Right, right. So a, a great 90s, you know, Tastes great, less filling. Well, it, re <laughs> it seems to reboot, right? It was HMOs, ISBNs, ACOs. Yeah, same, right. Same, Sa thing. same thing. Same, same crap, different day. And then, like, vertical integration is great. And you're like, well, Soviet Russia was vertically integrated. <laughs> that didn't yeah, work out extraordinarily well. Yeah. That that whole big skyscraper can, you know. It can fall over. Ever see an Irwin Allen movie? Oh, my God. I really am old. <laughs> <laughs> so you wrote this, this book. This is the most recent. Uh, this is uh, the most recent, yep. And what's the reception been to? Um, it's been good. I've had some fun with it, actually. So we know Dave Racer and, uh, together, and Dave is the publisher. This is uh, his publishing company, is Alethos Press. So um, I've had some um, uh, good exposure through that. And so I had the lead article in uh, Minnesota Physician Journal in August, the front page article on this. Um, you, of course, are very familiar with John Goodman. Mm -hmm who um, basic, basically his national publication is Healthcare News. So their think tank, his sort of premier health, uh, think tank is the Heartland Institute. Mm -hmm. And so I had some commentary done through there. I've done some TV and radio um, and uh, I'm getting a review through Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. I always get that AAPS is, mm -hmm. is initials for a bunch of things. So you gotta get those all right. Um, and so, you know, I, I do get sometimes from certain, even the physician population, the, well, you know, w what's wrong with it? Well, w with telemedicine, again, I've said so many times in interviews right off the bat, this is not a blanket condemnation, mm -hmm. okay? But it is a, let's take a look at, the physicians have a moral and ethical duty to provide care that is safe and appropriate to their patients, okay? And I think physicians have a duty to speak out mm -hmm. when they think there's an issue that might interrupt that flow. And so, I think it was a radiologist who actually said this to me, someone we both know, I believe. And I said, hey, I'm not 
it's not a blanket condemnation because there's a lot of things it can do, but we need to look at this critically, like right. all sorts of things that need to be looked at critically. So the reception has generally been uh, has been good, um, and I'm still working on it. Some other um, more higher, uh, some higher profile uh, profile interviews, um, and um, some more reviews and things like that. You know, it's just these days. As I've always said, writing books, unless you're Madonna and you're writing a book on child rearing, for which she's an <laughs> expert, of course, you know, you need to do your own marketing. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Even with, with uh, one of the big, you know, five publishers, you know, unless you're Madonna writing a book on child rearing. So, so you're constantly out there pushing. But um, I, it's, it's a subject that I, I wouldn't have gone through the, the, pro the whole process of writing it because it takes time and it's a lot of work and it's a lot of effort, but it's one of those things that, like I said, I looked at this and I went, what the hell? Yeah. I really did. Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't think it's going to get any better. I mean, that, that's people are going to continue to lose choice when it comes to both. Remember Obama's statement? Like, you'll be able to keep your doctor. Keep your doctor. Yeah. It's going to cost how much, what a percentage lesson. Yeah, that and was none of that came to pass. One right? of the previous books I went, yeah, buy well into buy into that, and it's just going to get worse. And so, you know, I'm encouraging smart people don't don't go into medicine not now. Give it wait till it implodes. Maybe you can come in 30, 40 years. Yeah, maybe. I, don't see a way to, I mean, how do you fix it? Well, so I get into that. I you know some of the things I talk about. There's a whole last chapter is called uh, uh, basically is managing the fallout, which is going to be the title of the book initially. My agents. Call it fallout, you know, the new age of telemedicine. I thought, well, you know, but then walking the tightrope, this is really the idea. You know, you could fall off, you could be okay, but <laughs> it depends on what you do. So it's like I tell patients, just as an aside into getting into this, but like the patient who called me today who couldn't get in, who was wondering, where do I go where they could do the testing? I said, well, if you go to your own doctor's office, they're going to refer you to an ER. You may end up needing a CT. She had some right-sided chest discomfort. And so here's an urgent care that the one I used to work with for a long at, for a long time, or work at for a long time, that can do CT and D-dimer and everything you need right there. So be familiar with where you're going. Know your doc. I go into this whole thing about the questions you can ask and should ask. How is this different from an in-person visit, et cetera? But what do you do in the long term? Well, the final part of the chapter is talking an interview with Dr. Don Gehrig about direct primary care. You know, and so there's a whole back and forth about this right now, and and can that happen? Where you pay basically a small fee to someone who basically just manages everything for you based on that, and there's some. Ex, uh, ex, uh, ancillary lab testing and things and hospitalization is still major medical but you get the access that you need to someone who's not bound by the insurance industry mm -hmm. and has to make sure that he checks he or she checks boxes a b c and d in order, in order to get there my only concern is that right now there are a lot of lifestyle people going into medicine mm -hmm. you know who want to go go in at nine and leave at five and getting them to do something like direct primary care and get started and build their way up without jumping in and getting all those advantages right away you know the paid vacation and this and that mm -hmm. and everything else i mean i would still be in my first independent practice if we could have made it yeah that was back in the days when capitation came in, another decapitation, as I like to call it, <laughs> you know, where, so you have this panel of patients, another great idea, right? And you're supposed to be, you, you are responsible for everything of their costs for this set fee that you're given. And it's like, this was another one of those take it or leave it things, yeah. like those contracts we'd get, well, well, you'll be paid 
you know, at the end of the year, you'll be paid overall, depending on what the experience of the insurance company is. I.e., if right. we don't make enough money, you right. know, we're going to chop you off at the. And shorts. somehow you controlled what these people ate. Well, right. Well, exactly that. Oh, like. my first book. Yeah, I talk about it. John, it's eleven o'clock. I know that, but I'm calling you up. Stay away from the refrigerator. <laughs> I know what you're doing. Um, so we had like two or three cardiac bypasses back in the day in this, and just lost our keisters on yeah. it. And you know, those are the kind of things that just drove us out of business. Yeah. And you know, so now we're up. I think even from pre-pandemic to before, it's close to eighty percent now. Of, you know, which again could be okay, but it's are you able to stand up and do what's right? And I, I just looked at telemedicine as this other example and went, oh my god. So and even now, one of these stats, and I had to write this down to remember to talk about this too. It's like apparently now it takes two times as long to see a patient as it did ten years ago. Mm -hmm. based on the fact primarily that about 80% of a physician's time is, is, is spent in data input. Right, that's right. And I don't mind EMRs. I kind of like some of the features. I, I love, the, yes. I love the, uh, the prescription monitoring program. Yeah. Uh, no. Or being able, to <laughs> being, able to, well, being able to pull CT scans from two years ago from two states away is exactly, pretty sweet. Exactly, exactly. And say, uh, no, really, you want what? And you, no. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I love but, that. But the data, I mean, so the, the, the upshot is, uh, is, is those things, but there's significant downside in that we're data entry clerks yeah. for a lot of the time. Or you have to, like in my practice, we spend a substantial amount of our uh, of, of money on getting data entry clerks mm -hmm. so that life is acceptable for the people that are trying to take care of patients. So we're not, when you come to see us, we don't look at computers. We sit on a stool and we look at you. Right. And we don't, right. someone else is doing that. But there's an expense that person's 20 bucks an hour 25 with benefits mm -hmm. right so and we're not getting paid anymore right and so we have to eat that um you know and just some, like just like interpreter services yeah <laughs> yeah oh incredibly expensive incredibly mm -hmm. expensive that's people don't know that though yeah we, you have an interpreter we're paying for that that comes out of your bill like my wife again no, says, well we get paid i should say why would you make your highest trained most highly compensated people do clerical work and, and that's exactly yeah. what it is. But it's it's data mining and, and everyone from your, you know, the, the insurance company that is part of the conglomerate to CMS to who knows whatever other set of bureaucrats on a federal level want data and they're gonna get it. Mm -hmm. And you're gonna put it in for them. You are, you are. And that all takes away from the time you get to actually spend with the patient, examining them, thinking about it, looking up something on your computer. Oh, I thought there was mm -hmm. a study that talked about this. and. So it's a huge cost, but when you go direct primary care, which I'm a huge advocate for, you mm -hmm. know who that person's working for. Right. My person, my plumber's not working for anyone else but me if he's coming to fix something in direct my house. Direct plumbing care. Direct plumbing care. DPC. So why would I choose, <laughs> <laughs> why would I choose a physician who's working for two or three other people besides me, right? Their employer mm -hmm. and the insurance carrier and, you know, potentially the government and whoever knows who else? I want them working for me. Mm -hmm. Like Don, Don's practice, you pay the bill. Right. And it's not even that much. People have it in their mind that this is something that rich people need to do. And I say, look, how much do you pay in premiums in a year? An, an awful amount. Or mm -hmm. you or your employer pays them. And I guarantee you as an employer, I'd rather put that money in your pocket. But we're stuck paying it. I'd rather give this to you so you could go to the Don Gehrig's of the world and write mm -hmm. a check for a reasonable amount of money and have someone on call all the time for your questions. Right. Help keep you out of the hospital. Take good care of you. I know they're working for you. They're ordering the what you need, tests and, and referrals. Um, it's just, it's hard. And for the people that are coming out now, I just, 
don't know if they see that as a pathway that's viable. A few of them. Right, if, if you, like I said, could go, but you're coming out also with incredible amount of debt, and mm -hmm. I can understand, you know, some of what's going on there too. Yeah. So, it's kind of amazing. But, um, yeah, direct primary care, I think, is definitely one of the answers, one of the ways to get us there. But I was in the first Elephants in the Exam Room book way back in 2007, I think, that came out, you know, pushing the idea of defined benefit, and uh, I'm sorry, defined contribution instead of defined benefit. Okay. I.e., we're going to give you, if, if employers are still covering the major, you know, part of the coverage of the cost of health care, um, and I think it was, and it still is about 50% government when you take, you mm -hmm. know, Medicare and Medicaid, um, but for everyone else, I think 80% of everyone else's is, is employer-based. Um, but mandate that something be purchased with it. You know, so we still have that, you know, way back from World War II, the in lieu of giving you an increase, you know, in wages, because of wage controls, we will do um, something that we can give you as a tax benefit. Mm -hmm. So, so of course, they save money, employers do, on giving uh, you, instead of extra wages, giving you a health benefit. But defined contribution, would, but with a mandated purchase of something like an HSA, high deductible plan, would allow you, rather than getting a defined benefit of, oh, this is who, you know, we, we're buying their idea of what your insurance should be, this is what you can do with it. So one thing would be is to take some of that money and mm -hmm. go to direct primary care. Uh, but until, and we've, how long have we all been saying this? Until people get more skin in the game. Right. You know, if it's comfortable, right, and it's convenient, it's like going on and, and um, trying to get your abdominal pain treated over your iPhone, uh, put that iPhone here and press hard. Um, that as long as something isn't dry, I, I think patients are the only people left who, we physicians don't have the power anymore. Yep. Politicians have a whole different, and I actually, that's interesting too, and in talking to a number of politicians about this, it's like, well, you know, this must be the answer. This is, a, hey, this is it, telemedicine, we can, well, no, there's, it's a little deeper than this. And I've had my talks with enough of them to understand now that it looks like this great panacea, right? right. You know, this is right. what we should do. But I'm, I'm kind of wandering here, but back to the, the defined contribution idea is we need to get that skin in the game where you really understand what the costs are. You're using your own money. You have an incentive to stay healthy, mm -hmm. you know, but, but how do we get that? I don't think that'll ever be legislated. Uh, I, I wish it would be, but perhaps if we get this message out enough to patients, and this book is as much to patients as anything to say, whoa, this is what you're getting, you know, and Kaiser, you know, out in the West Coast is giving you a plan that's, we'll give you this plan for way cheaper if you agree to use telemedicine services first. Mm -hmm. So you're just being routed down the path. They right? are, and you, and you get what you pay for. You get what you pay for. And so people have to start recognizing that. I mean, right. this... This episode is coming out in the beginning of open enrollment season. So every you know we talk about for Met Medicare Advantage, there's such high Medicare Advantage mm -hmm. uh, penetration into this market. And they're like, well, I get free this and free that. You know, first of all, healthcare. First thing your parents should have taught you: a is health club free. and dental. Yes. And yeah. And you're like, well, how about if you get really sick, can you go see the best people? Well, no, no, I can only see these people. Okay, so maybe those the health club and the sneakers and whatever it is don't matter. Mm -hmm. But what matters is access to really good people when you need it. Uh, and they're going to take that away. I mean, the, you know, Medicare, you can go see whoever you want. If you've got straight part B, any physician that takes Medicare, you can see them. You can go to Mayo, you can go to whoever accepts mm -hmm. it. But these Medicare Advantage plans constrain your network. 
They may have formularies that are bizarre. So the mm -hmm. drugs that you need just, hey, they're not covered. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I don't think the patients understand that, but they are a massive profit center for United Healthcare. United's mm -hmm. all in on Medicare Advantage plans. And it's a crony cartel approach to getting as much of that money as possible. And then a lot of the, you know, Republicans in at the federal level think that somehow this is the free market. And you're like, you don't understand. Just because there's companies involved does not mean that it's a market. That's the myth that they've been sold, that somehow Medicare Advantage is better than Part B because, well, these, these companies are going to do it and they'll drive the prices down. It's like, do you know how, they're, first of all, they're driving their profits up. Mm -hmm. And they do that by rationing care, cutting formularies, cutting access, cutting providers or physicians out of their mm -hmm. network mm -hmm. and making people wait a longer period of time to have access to it. Is that how you, and the honest ones are like, well, yeah, the costs are out of control. We have to ration it. Okay. Well, at least you're being honest, but sounds you're never like going to say that on a microphone. It sounds like Canada. <laughs> sounds like the NHS. Yeah. Um, but this myth that somehow Medicare Advantage was going to save anyone any money was always, it was just going to make United, the United's a little bit more money. And people from those countries understand it. I gave a, uh, talk to this group, the uh, critical thinking group, I think they call themselves, but one of the women there was had lived in the UK and she kind of talked about this as well. Everyone just expects something different. Basically, they expect nothing, yeah. you know, yeah. but talking about waiting and, you know, they really understand what it's like. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Canada's there's so much privatization going on there now, you know, you don't even have to come across the border anymore to get stuff. They're just nibbling at the edges because I mean they're nibbling at the edges because it's le it's illegal in yes. Canada to have a private yep. so you can't set up so it's a one year wait to get a yep. not terribly good knee replacement uh, that seems like a great market opportunity for an enterprising orthopedic surgeon to go get it done and have people pay cash but you're legally not allowed to yeah they're Can nibbling at the edges people in this country wouldn't it's like when Lee Carisco wrote um, his first book his radiologist I don't know if you know Lee. Mm -hmm. um, practiced in Canada, but one of the things that he decided, you know, forced him to think about writing this book was that he had a very young patient who had low back pain, probably in her late 20s. She was on the absolute lowest part of the list for getting an MRI. And of course, nine months later, it was a spinal cord mm -hmm. tumor and she's dead. She's dead. Uh, but I hope that I got that right, money. Lee, but that's, that's the way I remember that's what the engineer story. Did. Yeah. Well, exactly. And, and right. And, and, and things, you know, we can't have, you can't have everything. I mean, it's, it's just not possible. Things will happen. But there's a difference also between healthcare and health maintenance, I've always said too. So if we're paying for smoking cessation and cholesterol lowering and all sorts of and obesity, all sorts of other lifestyle related issues, healthcare to me is setting your fracture, sewing up your laceration, mm -hmm. delivering your baby, dealing with your malignant melanoma, mm -hmm. you know, a, a list of things that the, the amount of money we could save if we had decided that some of that health maintenance stuff actually should be totally out of your pocket. Right would be amazing. I wrote about that a lot in the first books. And also, you know, about the old quality equals outcomes things. This is the John, stay away from your refrigerator. It's 11 o'clock. So that our outcomes are so terrible here and we spend all this money. Well, yeah, there's a lot of reason for yeah. that. It's yeah. there's a lot of societal ills and drug use and all mm -hmm. sorts of things that contribute to that. But like I said, I can put Oh, it used to be 500 we'll call it $900 now, of expensive drugs in you every month. And if you weigh 350 pounds, I can right. make your numbers look good. Right. And the insurance industry is interested in your numbers. So I can get your blood pressure, your cholesterol, and your A1C. Are you a healthy person? No, but your numbers look good. So that sells, right? Yeah. yeah. And oh, so and that's is, how you is get it really good medicine? high quality. Right. And, and that, that, that and patient's dying. 
And the patient's done. Yes, and quality is supposed to equal outcomes. No, it doesn't here yep. because I can give you the most perfect quality of care in the world and the outcomes don't necessarily match it yeah. because patients have to be invested and there's something like, you know, 50% probably non-compliance across the board if you look at everything. Yeah. It's just, you know, but, but that it, it sells to blame physicians as yep. as being responsible for everything. Oh, and then, yes. I mean, I have a very good friend, also a physician, who was talking about some, he was just texting me some kind of pain. He's like, yeah, you know, I've I'm on two drugs for my blood pressure and this. It's been rough after COVID. I was like, dude, you're fat. <laughs> I said, if you unfat uh, yourself, mm -hmm. you will be off the drugs. You will feel good. Mm -hmm. All these things will go away. And he's a physician and he has access to a physician. Oh, and the person didn't yeah. sit him down and say, look, I can cure everything that's going wrong with you if you just do a few things. Yep. And so I said, here's what I want you to do. Write yourself for a continuous glucose meter and the fastest way I know how to get someone to lose weight is to carb restrict them. Do that. Let's get you to lose 30, 40 pounds. And sure enough, you know, like two months down, he's off all of his drugs. Mm -hmm. Everything's normalized. Lipids are better. Mm -hmm. his, his, uh, his blood pressure is totally normal again. Sleeping a lot better now. It's like, okay, now we need to get you on a sustainable long-term strategy for this. Mm -hmm. But, you know, adding more drugs to simply wallpaper over the problem that your type 2 diabetes is curable mm -hmm. and your obstructive sleep apnea right. is curable. Your hypertension is in many Exercise cases curable. Exercise and diet will cure practically most, all of it. Most of what's driving our healthcare costs. Mm -hmm. um, but not only are we not focusing on that, we're going the opposite direction and being like, well, you should have a body like Lizzo. And you're like, no, no one should have a body like Lizzo, not mm -hmm. even Lizzo. That's not a healthy way right. to be. But we're supposed you to celebrate like, it too. Yeah, well, we're not only supposed to tolerate it, we're supposed to celebrate yeah. it. But when you celebrate it, then what message are you sending? Well, you're, you're sending that message that right. somehow this is salubrious, and it's not. Just the same way that everyone looked at Kate Moss back in the day when she was modeling, like, nope, not that. Yeah, or you can go the other. The yes, you can go the <laughs> other way. And we've gone the other way. And the consequences from that are going to be that we're, we're listing people for liver transplants for NAFLD when they're 40. Mm -hmm. That we have people dying of preventable heart attacks because we're not looking at LP little a and correcting it in their 30s or 40s. Um, and more joint replacements, more stents in 40-year-olds, all of these things. Well, and if you've been obese for your entire life, I, I do think when you're 60 or 65 and you need a knee or a hip, you should have to choose between buying that new motorhome and paying for the hip or the knee. <laughs> no, I, I mean, seriously, but that's... But where but, was but, your but, pediatrician? Like, we, but, you know, we, where was someone to say like, hey, you, your body just cannot handle fructose, yeah. and so there just can't be any yeah. in your diet. You're just... I'm sorry, for whatever reason, yeah. it's made a little bit differently and we can. And it's difficult. Where do you draw the line? I mean, do you have put riders on policies if your kids play hockey or if you go skydiving? Sure, or, right, right. We know, accept I mean, some, some degree of, of risk and choices because we live in a level. society. Um, but at the very least, we could say this is not good, right? Mm -hmm. the, the cigarettes come with a warning saying this is bad for you. Okay, you still can choose to do that, but mm -hmm. no one who smokes Every donut should have bad. a tag on it. <laughs> it should. <laughs> so I'm thinking of names and tossing names around. Paul Elwood. You know, I, I, I have been around a while because when I finished med school, and I was thinking of this just in talking about the whole Minnesota experience thing here, I almost went to work for Paul Elwood when he was at Interstudy. Um, and, of course, this was much after, you know, the father of the HMO and all that stuff with Nixon. But he was still running Interstudy. And I went and interviewed with him and so gladly, and I talk about this in the book, which is what I was thinking about it. I said, you know, after 40 years of births and deaths and late nights and, and you know, good 
wonderful things and tragedies that happen when patients die. I can still look at myself in the mirror in the morning and go, you know, this was great. Uh, and to someone, you know, who has a big corner office and, you know, would absolutely crap their drawers if a patient collapsed ahead of them, you know, but wants to tell me how medicine should be practiced, mm -hmm. you know, I can stand up and say, I can do this. You can't do this. I'm happy that I did this. Take your money and stick it where the sun doesn't shine. <laughs> I mean, seriously, think about what we do and what we could have done. I think about this a lot. I'm not bragging about that other than to say physicians are, <laughs> you don't get into med school and get through a residency unless you're smart and driven and mm -hmm. persistent. And there's a lot of other things we could have done, you know, but that's why I think <laughs> a lot of times there are certain bureaus, bureaus and bureaucrats and, and insurance industry execs who hate docs who will stand up because of that same persistence right. and say, this is what I took an oath to do and this is what I was trained to do. I, I am going to grab, though, I do have the, my Dave Durenberger quote here. I thought this was the, the blurb from Dave, who I've known for a long time, was uh, one of the uh, best I had to say uh, about the, I should have marked it, and so what do I do? I didn't mark it. Uh, of course, Dave Racer and Lee Beecher, who you both know, mm -hmm. also um, did a, uh, a blurb for the book. Dave says, we're living in a world where, for many, convenience seems to trump reasoning when it comes to choosing medical care. Patients demand it, and corporate medical America is happy to supply it, hastened by the government-sponsored expansion of telemedicine. Dr. Wayne Leapart's new book, Walking the Tightrope, Trusting Your Life to Telemedicine, is a stark wake-up call to those who believe that their doctors may be still in a position to regulate the safety of telemedicine for acute care. This book is a must-read for all consumers of medical care as the inside information it provides on how we got here and how we can use that information to forge a safer future is invaluable. Thank you, Dave. So he was on um, Minnesota Academy of Family Physicians leadership for a long time. Was that how you knew Dave, or was it? Um, I knew him. Well, we were both Johnnies, okay. you know, so there, there's that tie. And his dad, George Dernberger, was an icon up at St. John's. Um, so I knew him from that, but we started doing, I started doing a little work for him. He became um, the director of the National Institute on Healthcare after he got out of the Senate. So he was sort of Mr. Healthcare, or Senator Healthcare in the Senate, and, and had this sort of his own think tank, basically, and that's where he and I got together and kind of did some stuff. So I knew him from then, and um, he's 89 years old now and still sharp as a tack. You mentioned and a great resource on policy. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned some of these organizations uh, you had, had written for uh, Minnesota Physicians yeah. mm -hmm. Journal, and I kind of came in at the tail end of that, like when the Minnesota Medical Association was basically dying, and now I'd say it's it's completely dead. Um, that transition, I mean, do you have any history on kind of how it started to fall off with physicians? Was it just employment, like the death of physician groups that... Yeah, I think that was part of it. It was kind of the whole, you know, the doctor's lounge is dying because no one, you know, because it was, I think part of it that there are certain things, for instance, concentrating on quelling teenage smoking is an admirable idea, mm -hmm. okay? But also supporting your physicians who are failing in their independent practices because they're being hammered by the insurance industry is probably more what your medical association should be concentrating on. So if anything, I think at the time, they became less relevant. And 
to what practicing physicians really needed. I mean, in a nutshell, that's how I see it. And, and, and I, I wish they could be more. I, I'm not here to lambast anybody, but at the same time, it's like, look at what's going on out here. Look at what physicians need. Yeah, no, I, I think that my, that's my read on it is they went from being a professional organization, which is a profession, an organization that defends a profession, mm -hmm. right? The cops have the MPPOA, the nurses have the Minnesota Nursing mm -hmm. Association, and we should have had the MMA, but they became instead a social justice public health organization, which mm -hmm. leaves us as a profession completely undefended. And some people would argue and say, well, is that just about reimbursement or regulatory burdens. No, it's about defending a profession. That is mm -hmm. the freedom to stand up to public health authorities and say, no, we think you're wrong about X, Y, Z thing, or we think we need to advocate for our patients more. We need to have the freedom to advocate for our patients. We need to have the freedom to practice in the way that we need to practice for our patients, even if we're in a part of a large organization. There's no one to defend you. And you know what, it's, just it's, it, it's like Stockholm Syndrome, and I, I referred, um, to the AMA in a previous book and to this one, sort of as a form of Stockholm Syndrome where doctors probably for a while did look to be quite self-serving, but if, if doctors ever said anything, they got nailed for being self-serving. Mm -hmm. And I think eventually the AMA went Stockholm Syndrome and went, well, okay, we're gonna kind of agree with you know our captors here. Mm -hmm. And 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 so to, to remain relevant or even, re and I, you know, I have to look at my own stats in here, but if I remember correctly, um, I was talking about what the AMA president was talking about when they were talking, oh, that telemedicine is so important. And, you know, we ramped up from nothing to complete in like eight days or something. I'm going, really? <laughs> How the hell could you have done that, you know, in this short of time? But that, I think more than half of their funding is is from the federal government. Correct, right. So right? many people don't understand this. I mean. And then, so, so who are you going to be beholding to? So professional organizations, right? So the nurses or the cops or the teachers. Because who belongs to the AMA anymore? Do you? No, I no one belong does. to the no AMA. One no one No yeah, one should. Exactly. But, I keep getting dues, you know, yeah. for the last 25 years. Yeah. But I'm, you Tear know. them up, throw them away. Yeah. So, but professional organizations, by definition, are supposed to be self-serving. They exist to serve the needs of that little slice of their profession, right? Mm -hmm. Teachers, cops. Right. Doctors, lawyers. Every organization has them. Ag. Um, pharma, right? Mm -hmm. So th there should be no sh shame in the fact that you have a professional organization out there advocating for the best interests of your members. Mm -hmm. But the AMA decided, the AMA used to be feared. I mean, in the 1950s, if the AMA lobbyist called, you did what they told you to do. Mm -hmm. And for a longer period of time, the ADA, the dentist's union lobby, was the same way on Capitol mm -hmm. Hill. And now it's a joke. They're all a bunch of wokesters because their money, the AMA shifted from being a membership organization that made money off of having happy, healthy membership and advocating for the needs of those members to one that made its money by selling CPT codes. Mm -hmm. So they created the coding yeah. system. Mm -hmm. And the AMA is entire, they make all of their money now. So all those codes, when anyone who's listening to this, you get your bill and it has a five-digit code next to a, you know, up to nine-digit diagnosis code mm -hmm. that was created. It was created by academics, but then embraced fully by the AMA and the HMOs in the 80s and turned mm -hmm. into the way that we would get paid. They found a niche. Yes. And so the AMA said, we can exploit this niche even though it's to the detriment of the people we're supposed to be representing. So physicians no longer have a professional organization of any merit. We have 
AAPS, we have NBPAS, we have some of these small organizations that are trying to pick up the pieces. Um, but we don't have a, a union or even a professional organization in the same way that cops or teachers or nurses have one. Mm -hmm. And the result is, now you can see what happens. I mean, the profession goes away and you just become kind of a corporate employee. Yeah, I, and, and where do you go? If you would ask docs, where do you go if you have a concern? Yeah, yeah. right. What do you do? Who, who would stand up for you? There's nowhere to go, you retire. Mm -hmm. Or you commit suicide. Yeah. I mean, those are the two choices. And um, neither of those are great choices because I think not only are we turning out less trained uh, wokesters that are pretending to be physicians, the people that are still in the field like me are like, how do I get out of here? I mean, I've got another 40 years. The dermatologists never retire because you can practice as your mind's intact. Mm -hmm. You can practice till you're 90, 95. Mm -hmm. um, I would love to do that. But you look at the writing on the wall, the regulatory burden, you look at the reimbursement, keeping your practice alive and viable, paying all these people's paychecks, taking good care of the people in front of you, and you're like, not sure. This is you need to just quit and write books and join a band. I mean, that sounds great. If I had <laughs> talent in either one of those, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> oh my God. Oh, so I, I mean, it's, you know, it's easy to get, it's easy to get super depressing about this, but the reality is people get sick and people need someone to help get them healthy again. And so mm -hmm. I have a glimmer of hope when I look at something like direct primary care, because I'm all about incentives and the incentives are aligned. Mm -hmm. The doctor works for you. Right. And is dedicated to keeping you healthy. And that's what we need to convince the public of is that that's what they need. Mm -hmm. But the whole, con like I said, the whole convenience culture also, this is, it just throws me when I look at it and go, because they trust everything. Really, the trust is there somehow that if it's being offered, it's going to be okay. And that really is the whole basis of this. When I wrote this, I thought, man, you're really buying into this, aren't you? You're really yeah. buying that since someone's offering it or that, you know, tastes great, less filling or, you know, get the same great cares with an office visit kind of a thing. Or one of them is, why go all the way across town to see your doctor when, well, how about, Maybe so you stay alive. Yeah, uh, if you're having chest pain, maybe it's <laughs> yeah. worth the trip. Maybe, yeah. Maybe it might be worth the trip to not try to do that one on the phone. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, how, how are we doing on your list of I think we're stuff? pretty. I think we're pretty good. I, I just, you know, I, a couple of things I thought that were just important things to talk about. I think we covered the things on my list. Um, so if you want to pick up any of my other stuff, Wayne Leapart, that's me up here, WayneLeapart.com. So banned uh, oh, several books. Um, but Dave is actually doing a back titles page on Alethos Press for me. So Alethos Press or Amazon, it'll be up on Barnes as an ebook also shortly. Um, and, um, but yeah, the uh, music stuff, I think I talked about that a little bit. That's just, just a little bit. Let's talk more about that. Oh, so, uh, yeah, I've yeah. been in the, the <laughs> so in this band that's been around called the Solid Gold Band since 1973. I didn't join them then. I wasn't that old <laughs> and close though, a couple of years later. We have a nomination to the Minnesota Music Hall of Fame this year because we're going to be 50 years on, but uh, we uh, record. I wrote three new albums for the band that we recorded and put out last year, kind of a, a, a rock um, alternative and then a country Americana and then a solo one that I did. Um, played a bunch of instruments on it, did the singing. We do uh, music videos. <laughs> Go on. Uh, YouTube, or you can go to our uh, website, which is the solidgoldband.net. Um, there's a music video called A Doctor Sings the Obamacare Blues. <laughs> and it's got about 50,000 hits or so. It's, it's, it's going there. But we recorded this in a uh, brand new operating room. I won't say where. Um, I can't say where. Because we were doing a, how did I state this? We were doing a healthcare related video. 
Well, it turned out um, that these four doctors were all dead and they had toe tags on that said, you know, Obamacare. <laughs> and so I shocked them back to life and we played the song, the Obamacare Blues, and then, you know, they all died at the end again. <laughs> and um, But just stuff like that. I mean, it, it's just it's just way too much fun. So music videos and albums and we play out regularly to the state fair this year with, for the first time, which was fun. Um, and um, it's it's just, it's it's probably one of those sanity inducing things, although it's crazy in its own way at times. But I've had some really interesting experiences over the years where patients would see me and go, huh? <laughs> I think I only had one woman who said, you know, she'd never come back to see me again because for some reason, me being on the stage and, and you know, playing guitar and yeah. jumping around and dancing and singing was, was too much. And I go, well, okay, I, for the most part, people see you as more of the real human yeah, person human. Right. that you are. You know, going away from the, as I attack Zeke Emanuel in the book here, I said, you know, he, he made me think of one of my favorite jokes is, what's the difference between uh, God and the doctor? God doesn't think he's a doctor. <laughs> so you don't want to fall into that. <laughs> or in the music one, what's the difference between a musician and a pizza? A pizza can feed a family of four, which is why I did the doctor. Yep. <laughs> You have a day job. <laughs> you have a day job. Right? So, what are some of your favorite bands? Oh, I, you know, I like. My wife refers to that time of a uh, hundred hours in the hospital during internship and all that stuff as the lost years. When I, I'll, the some song will come on and I'll go, God, that's a great new song. She said when that came out in 1982. You just never heard it. <laughs> and so, a lot of the 70s bands, but you no. Know, so we do. Um, Beatles and John Cougar out of the 80s. Um, I like uh, Yes. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I, um, I like blues to an extent. Stevie Ray Vaughan, um, uh, Booker T. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm trying to think of some of the other things that we are. Um, Michael Jackson was one of my favorite artists of all time. I just love all of his stuff. Well, I'm just kidding. He's but awesome. Beatles, uh, you know, some Stones, but yeah, good, good old classic rock, which is what we yeah. do. So that's awesome. What about you? No, I mean I, I listen to everything. So musically, omnivorous, and uh, a lot of I mean a lot of classic rock. You know, we choose the radio station. So you know, like you have a business, so like you have to have like a business like a, where they pay all the license fees and everything. So we mm -hmm. stuck with Sirius XM, which for better or worse, but we'll rotate through, you know, like we'll, and then we always give the, the younger people a hard time when you put on like 70s stuff, like this, you know, before your time, but this is like real, really good music. <laughs> but, uh, oh, yeah. but hey, the, tell you what, the kids a lot of times are really into it. We'll, we'll go play yeah. lounges and stuff, man, they want, it's really good danceable stuff. And I don't want to be one of those guys that says, you know, that music died in 1988 right, or something. Right. Yeah, it's just not, it's can't not true. Do that. I mean, Bruno true. Mars is a perfect example of why it hasn't. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. You know, I mean, there's just yeah. great stuff out there, but mm -hmm. but it's, you know, it, it's fun. And it's just, it's something where you interact with people. And that's the cool thing about medicine. I mean, that's why I went in. You know, the old, you know, the thing what you're supposed to say in your med school, in, med school interviews, right? Well, I like science and I want to work with people. <laughs> and, um, but, it, but it really is true. I mean, but with, you know, great responsibility, right? Yeah. We, and that's the part that's always gotten to me here. It's like, man, I, I, I'll take the hits. I, I, will, I will be responsible for everything, but you can't tie my hands. I mean, 
I practiced 35 years and close to 40 years in this area where I delivered babies of people I went to church with, saw in the grocery store. Mm -hmm. You know, I never wanted to mess up, but you really don't want to mess up when you're you're treating your neighbors and, mm -hmm. and you're living in a community and you want to do the right thing for these people. And what a cool deal when you can become a part of their life, you know, and you deliver babies of babies, babies, of babies. you delivered. And then you yes. go, my God, am I getting old? <laughs> You know, but it's just such a cool deal. There's so many great things about medicine and 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 what we're given, the opportunity we're given to what we can do. It. And th that's why it's just disgusting when you see the things that happen and your hands get tight. Well, it's like, you know, no, you're just all trying to defend your turf. That old argument yeah. of no. You know, it, well, it, okay, to an extent, maybe yes. But to the fact that I want to do the right thing for you, yeah. you know what? And and I'm not out here to make money because I could have made a hell of a lot more money lot more doing money something different. Exactly. Yeah. So and and that's why I'm not complaining about that, not at all, you know. But yeah, the turf thing is a funny one to me. I mean, I remember. So your you know your generation of family physician did everything. We did it, right? and I loved it. And it's great, and that's loved what it. we need. And somehow they sold people on this myth that that just couldn't happen. I, I used to train residents more. I kind of backed away because I started the qualities really started to get bad but earlier you know my first few years out of residence which is even, not even that old like that's within the last decade they were good and they they were eager to learn mm -hmm. uh dermatology stuff and i was eager to have them not refer patients to me that didn't need to see me because i only mm -hmm. have so many appointment slots and i'd rather be taking care of difficult cases mm -hmm. or cases that have failed easy diagnosis but have failed first second third line therapy great send that to me mm -hmm. but like look if it's a small skin cancer on the arm you need to cut this out in clinic it doesn't need to come see me save the big tumors on an eyelid or a nose for coming to see me okay mm -hmm. so you should do this and i'm going to teach you how to do it and your outcomes are going to look really good and earlier so this isn't even that long ago a decade ago they were eager to learn they were good they were good with their hands and they wanted to do those mm -hmm. now you tell them to just take a skin biopsy and they get terrified and say, no, I'm going to refer you. That's a precipitous drop in a, in a, Wait a, minute. In a decade. <laughs> right. So what's happening when, you know, family docs used to do all this. I, I, I love to take out stuff in the office. Yeah, it's super fun. You know, exactly. It's I super mean, fun. give me that huge saves old sebaceous cyst or, or whatever. Yes, saves but, the patient a trip. But, so now what happens is, so when the family docs don't want to do it and they send it to derm and there's the, the derms are sending it on to plastics? No, 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 we do it. No, but, but I mean, to some, you said where they, or is it just the residents? That this don't is the residents. The residents changed. The mindset Ooh, changed to somehow do when they get my into practice. Oh, shotgun uh, referrals. To whom? Oh, to, Other to, dermatologists to, who will do it? or, or Oh, yeah. So it's the derms who do it, but it's the. It, oh, oh, oh I'm sorry. I thought family. you were talking about yeah, yeah, derm yeah, residents. You're yeah, talking yeah. about family, no, family practice residents. Oh, family okay. practice residents. Gotcha. And so I'm like, well, wh why don't you do this? Because that preserves an appointment oh, God, spot for me yes. to see something more complicated. Plus, it's fun. I'll teach you to do it, it'll be great. And they're like, ah, oh. you know, and then sometimes a couple will get out and try to do it. And they're like, oh, our clinic's not set up for it. And our staff can't do, what are you trying to do? Trying to do stuff like this. You're work for an organization. Your job is to shotgun out consults. And I'm like, how terrible and demeaning. No. And you can do this. And you at some point you should fidelity I can. do something like suddenly decide to make money. You're going to start doing Botox. That's, that's not, no, <laughs> that's, but that's happening. I know it that's is happening. not in our purview, but you know, dealing with skin goombas and yes. taking out sebaceous cysts and doing biopsies. And my God, come on. It's totally bread and butter. That's what you it should make, be doing. You should be doing it. They'll make your life better. Your patient doesn't need to go somewhere else. And depending on where they're at, they may have to wait six months. And it's like, I could. Right, I know. 
do this in 10 minutes? Yeah, isn't that on, something? Man. So, yeah. I, I don't I've, know if it's schedules or there, but there is some fear. Well, every I think, field has gotten balkanized. Yes. and Well, I think they use fear as a excuse. I mean, obviously there's some degree of like, look, look, we don't want you, you know, doing excision on an eyelid unless you're very comfortable doing that. Yeah. But like this other stuff is effectively is a risk. You can be taught to do it well. Um, that balkanization has invaded everything. The joke now is like, you know, I'm an orth orthopedic surgeon. Well, which, which side do you operate on? Which joint, <laughs> which, which toe side? do you do? Yeah. I'm a, I'm a great, <laughs> left great toe only orthopedic <laughs> surgeon. Gotcha. Only on Tuesdays um, when the moon is full. That's but. right. So, but that's <laughs> happened in everything. I mean, it used to be cardiologists yeah. with cath people. Right mm -hmm. now they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Well, and you it's not, there was a little standard of care stuff, but it's not all that. Like, so I'm out in track being started. I mean, these guys are going, I'm, so I'm, you know, taking off rust rings, you know, with a burr or sometimes, you know, even not with that. And the cornea is thick enough. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> and it's like, really? Well, I don't have yeah. an ophthalmologist right around the corner that's going to see you. So we do it. You know, or like I said, we're running the ICU mm -hmm. or whatever, and we're doing a damn good job. But part of it, I mean, you know, when you have, there is a certain community standard of care. It's like ERs, you know, who would do certain types of tendon repairs that won't do them anymore. The ER docs who they automatically go to hand surgeons. Mm. There's some of that, but there's a lot more of it towards schedules and, you know, what I just don't want to do. And so 75%, and I think this number is still correct, of dollars that are spent in medicine are spent on chronic care. So family docs have been basically turned into chronic care moguls. So they don't go to the hospital anymore because hospitalists took that all over. Mm -hmm. So that whole, you know, we see the complete patient and deliver your baby and do all of the rest of that is gone. But one of the reasons you can't get in, this is like eight days or 10 days now just to see a, a virtual visit, is we're managing cholesterol and diabetes mm -hmm. and obesity and blood pressure and that's all we do which is one of the reasons, like I said, that I, as much as I hated it, I'd love to still be doing family medicine in a, in a primary care clinic, was with prior authorization and all the rest of the stuff going on. I mean, we couldn't keep the doors open. Mm -hmm. I was seeing 40 patients a day, 50 weeks a year, doing hospital work and moonlighting to make it happen. That's wow. how bad our reimbursements got. Wow. And we were running ourselves ragged. That's an unsustainable. It is not sustainable. Yeah. And we were still giving good care. And that means your coronaries are tight and you're there from eight in the morning until eight at night and still doing paperwork and whatever. We're doing what we're doing. It was a community. We wanted to do it right. We wanted to do it well. Um, but when the rest, basically what drove us out finally, it wasn't even the money. It was the, our hands are tied too much to yeah. do this anymore, basically. And so, you know, now different situation. I mean, so there's people seeing what in their schedules, 20 people, you know, maybe in mm -hmm. a day and going anything that sort of distracts from that, or I'm not keeping right up with those appointments. You know, we were talking about this when I was at my friend's retirement party. It's like, we never turned anyone away. We never did. People knew that they'd sometimes have to wait an hour, but they knew when it was their emergency, we would take care of them. And mm -hmm. we, and our office manager with our, you know, okay, said, never turn anyone away. We will see you. We'll figure out a way to make this work. Mm -hmm. That's what family practice and primary mm -hmm. care was about. Well, that's also what it's like when you're incentive, people talk about, well, there's this evil of fee for service. Like, you know what fee for service means is your orthopedic surgeon adds you on for a knee. So you don't have to wait nine months. The dermatologist sees you at the end of the mm -hmm. day because I actually get paid to add that patient on. 
if you capitated or you go NHS style or Canada style mm -hmm. or you work for a big system where yeah. it's like all you are, my incentive is to go home, mm -hmm. then you're just a thing standing in the way of me going home. Person so be goes careful to what you wish for. Care in Canada and waits three hours, and 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 this was from someone I interviewed or talked to about this, and they close at nine o'clock. Well, they didn't get to them. See ya. Sorry. See ya. Yeah. Yeah, don't, don't, like don't the VA. yeah. Doesn't yeah. matter when you checked yeah. in. Have a nice night or find an ER or die of your whatever you're dealing with. People don't they need to understand that that's that's the cost. If you want to if you want to take profit out of it, you're going to get a system that optimizes for going home as early as possible. So you're going to mm -hmm. get VA level care, you're going to get Canada level care. Neither of those are what I would consider actual good health care. So if you drive profit out, if you drive the ability to make a good living, mm -hmm. um, you know, that's not any of our motivation, but if there's no profit, you cannot All right, you still want to be incented to do that because if you're keeping your nurses late and paying them overtime, overtime and yep. you're, all of the rest of that, it all costs money. Yeah, it does. And so we, you know, we always say if, if you, if any clinic calls and it's before 2 p.m., uh, we'll get you in that same day. Otherwise, we'll see you the next day. But That's we always, amazing. If you call, we'll always get you in because if you thought it was important enough to pick up the phone, mm -hmm. and you know what? In 10 years, no one's abused it. No one's sent in some just like, come on, man. Like it's like a little inner trigo like this mm -hmm. could have waited. It's mm -hmm. always <clears throat> like they thought it was bad. Even if they were incorrect, you could see how it totally is legit ask. Mm -hmm. And the patient's thankful for it. Right. The referring doc's thankful for it. Um, mm -hmm. But that doesn't, that 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 era I feel like is is ending. And when I get a call from one of my colleagues that I know, it's like whatever I need to do to accommodate your request, we're gonna within mm -hmm. reason try to do this. And it's a professional courtesy when I call <coughs> you know I call you back and say, hey, I I know it's bad, but can you add on this case? We had that too. And when you know your consultants versus you take whoever the consultant is the person for that conglomerate or insurance. Yes. Right. Yeah. So you don't even know who your consultants are. Back in the day, we had ENT and ortho and cardiologists. If we needed something, mm -hmm. they knew they'd get the referrals too, and we wouldn't send them to these people unless they were good. So mm -hmm. it wasn't just because they were there, but that was the relationship you had, and they would see them and deal with them. And you know, I've got this bad fracture. Can you, you know, can you take them in today? Yeah, yeah, kind of thing. And and it takes years to build that reputation, but I right. think it. The, the patient benefits at the end of the day. Let me make a phone call. I know the wait list is six months out. Mm -hmm. we'll, we'll get you in within a week. And it, and it happens. Um, but I think, I, again, for worry that that's coming to an end. And the result of that isn't that I can get anybody in. The, the question is never what insurance does this guy have that you're sending over? Mm -hmm. It's like, yep, Neil, I'll take care of it for you. Just send yeah. him over, right? What it's going to be is that the wealthy will always have that access. Mm -hmm. They will always have someone who can pick up a phone call and get them in. But someone who works for a living, no. <clears throat> and that's been the, 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 the social contract with physicians and society was mm -hmm. that we saw everyone who came through the mm -hmm. door and the margins were such that we could make it happen. You wrote off care all the time. That's exactly right. Exactly right. And we saw everybody. But and now that's how you could. Be, that's how you could. Now what it's going to be is the wealthy will simply have more. They'll have whatever access they want. Mayo Clinic is happy to see them. They're mm -hmm. happy to fly mm -hmm. in the shake from Dubai or wherever it is. No, but if you're, you know, Joe Q public with Medicare or heaven forbid Medicaid or some not great commercial plan, sorry, too busy. <clears throat> yeah, I know. And this whole idea of a two tiered system you go back and forth on that. But it was the higher payers that allowed us to write stuff off, too. So there's kind of the, you know, yeah. both sides of that where but you want to be able to see everyone. But, yep. you know, when you couldn't even offer courtesy anymore or yeah. write off, gee, you know, you'll get jailed by the powers that be at CMS right. if you didn't take someone's copay. 
That, that's right. Well, he was down in his lock and this and that. Nope. <clears throat> right. If, right. If you no say exceptions. you're okay with it. Yeah. yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And, and I think a lot of people don't know that. So it's been fun to do this kind of deep dive into healthcare policy related stuff from people on the inside like you and Dave Racer and Lee. Um, because I think the average person that's listening just doesn't understand or they think doctors are just whiny and like, yeah, maybe we're whiny, but everyone's whiny to some degree. <coughs> but mm -hmm. we're whining because there's a real cost at the end of the day. And the real cost is people's moms and kids and their grandparents. And those people, everyday people get hurt because of the way that the system has been deteriorating. And I don't want that to happen. The oath I took was not to do no harm. And I see harm becoming <coughs> endemic within the system and the way that it's structured. Mm -hmm. And unless we do something to walk that back, we're going to now see systematic harms where entire groups of people no longer have access that's meaningful or good. They have people that are poorly trained. They have people that are incentivized to do things that are in the opposite interest of the patient, that they're there making money for big pharma, who continues to pay <coughs> record dividends. United Healthcare of the world continues to pay record dividends. And the people who suffer at the end of the day are the patients. And again, my oath is to them, not to any of the other folks. Um, so, you know, I don't think it's beyond what can be salvaged, but I would rather there was less pain before it implodes and gets rebuilt. Yeah. And that we start <clears throat> to look a little further ahead and say, <clears throat> let's try to fix it before it. I think that's how Don Gehrig feels too. Yeah. I mean, he's, I, really, I get that in what he's writing. And there's, there's even the, I go into the, in the intro here about the, you know, trying to avoid what could lead to harm, which people don't think about anymore either. And having to use a Minnesota metaphor about driving out to your ice house, right? Uh, in the winter to go ice fishing and, you know, so do you trust the fact that someone said there's eight inches of ice or do you know, do you drill the you holes drill yourself? Hole. <laughs> and it's like, what's your doctor doing? Is your doctor doing that? Or, you know, are you trusting just because there's a fancy medical building there and there's flashing lights and yeah. it says, oh, okay, we must be avoiding harm because look at this great fancy. So, you know, is, that person looking that far or are they not? Who did you drill the holes or did you, or are the patients supposed to drill the holes? And I was talking mm -hmm. about this patient in particular with Fournier's gangrene. Are, are they supposed to, or do they even own an ice auger or know how to use an ice auger or do they trust? Yes, they're not in a position to that, do that. Right, that they're, you know, so I have to use the Minnesota metaphors, of course, but um, but they're not in a position to do it. And should they, they should be trusting someone who's willing to do that. But that person should be able to also you know, maintain that trust and be doing those things rather than be somehow, well, focusing on who knows what, being the steward of the healthcare dollar, mm -hmm. I don't know, wondering whose land you're standing on. Again, do those things in your own time, whatever. I'm not gonna tell you how to think or what to, but seriously, look at medicine for what it is, which is a profession and there's great responsibility, you know, mm -hmm great responsibility that we need to maintain like always. It. Perfect. Seems like a good place to wrap it up. Anything else that we've? I don't think so. I don't think so. We told a few jokes, you told know. A few jokes. Uh, talked know. about band, talked about this. Talked about this, talked about that, talked well, about life in general. So I hope you keep writing. Um, yeah. Excited to check out the fiction books and your website again. So mine is wayneleapart.com. Um, the uh, website for this, and, and so all my previous books and the band stuff and everything are on wayneleepart.com. Alethos Press, so A-L-E-T-H-O-S Press. But if you look up Walking the Tightrope, Trusting Your Life to Telemedicine, you'll, you'll find it there um, as well. Yeah, this, this 
last one, is, the latest one is going to be kind of interesting. It's just about the whole, it's a post-pandemic thing about when we're into yearly COVID vaccines <laughs> and what's happening as a result of that. The ones tested on eight mice? The one <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, I, I can't, I can't give, I can't give, uh, I can't give too much away. Perfect. But, uh, well, we'll look forward to that. Thank you again. I yeah. really appreciate you taking yeah, time hey, sitting I, down. I do too. I really awesome. appreciate your having me here. Thank you. Yeah.